few years ago, Tim and I were hanging out in his driveway and he approached me with the question, should we start a podcast? And I've heard a lot of podcast ideas. I didn't know what he was going to say, but he said, what if we got very interesting people in the room and asked them what they were reading? And I thought, that's great. That's such a powerful question. It's such a great way to hear from interesting people. And it would open so many doors for good conversation. So we started that podcast. We've met live in Atlanta Vintage Books um, for a few years, and it exploded into a shambly-wide phenomenon. <laughs> we had so many great guests. Well, now it's now it's in Athens, so you know. Yeah, <laughs> we we're, call we're that a diaspora of sorts, you know. <laughs> well, uh, our guest today, we're counting on him to bring in the Athens market. That's really why we've called you here today. <laughs> um, but it, it grew into a great thing, but both of us had, you know, kids and stuff to deal with. And so we uh, ended the first season indefinitely. Um, <laughs> yep. And then now that we're in the middle of a pandemic, we kind of were like, we need to really be having these conversations about what's good to read. I mean, people have time to read now that they may not have had before, or if they're homeschooling like us, they have less time and they want to choose better <laughs> books to put in there you time. go. Quality, so not quantity. <laughs> Quality, not quantity. Whatever your reason for being here is, we're glad you're here. And we're back with a very special guest we're excited about tonight. I'll let Tim introduce him. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so this is a guy we met, uh, Ian and I met at our church open table community years and years ago. But he, you know, is a religious historian. He is also a bright beacon of light on the desolate landscape of facebook uh he is the one and only ryan woods we're so we're so glad to see you i mean kind of face to face but to to talk with you as well <laughs> yeah oh well, i'm delighted to be here i've kind of watched this phenomenon from afar and uh it always sounded like a really interesting thing to participate in and um uh always interested to see what you all are up to as well so yeah, i'm looking forward to it well um we are in such a such an intense uh, political season in our country. And actually, for the first time in my life, and I didn't expect it, um, my dad, who's a pastor and missionary, um, evangelicals are all talking about critical race theory after the Black Lives Matter movement sort of rose up. And so um, I got this article from my dad, which was uh, unexpected, that had thoughts on Adorno from a uh, yeah, just an interesting season. All this stuff's coming up that I never thought we'd be talking about. And I'm and from, actually from voices. Pleased. Yeah, please. But also from voices or from people. Yeah, I don't know. I never thought for better or worse, I guess. Some good, but some not so not so great voices. But yeah, I've been surprised. Yeah, so Tim and I are very confused. So we were hoping you could help clear this up for us. Um, there's so many religious phenomena kind of in play right now. Um, one of them is the sort of partisan uh, weight of particularly white evangelicalism. I'm not sure if that's very clearly defined in the public mind, but uh, it's, it's sort of something that's weighing heavily on this election. And then just recently the Pope in a documentary um, sort of uh, made a statement about same-sex uh, unions, um, which is kind of dividing 
uh, Catholics, and we're going to see how to how that plays into the election. But do you have any books or readings you do or pass on to your students about sort of how to make sense of how the church in America got to where it is today? Wow, uh, that's such a great question. Um, sort of the best answer to that is that there's lots of books um, yeah. <laughs> that you could look at. Um, <laughs> I found, and you know, some people will probably uh, nick me on this one, but I found a sociologist actually that I believe is still at Notre Dame. Uh, his name is Christian Smith. Um, okay. I don't believe he's actually um, evangelical at all, but he's written a number of books uh, that I find really helpful, at least in at least just describing the phenomena. Um, uh, so he has a book on evangelicalism uh, and he defines it as engaged orthodoxy. Um, and, you know, really, when you talk about evangelicalism, the sort of first question, uh, and where a lot of scholars spend most of their time, actually, and don't say much else beyond just describing the phenomena, uh, is, you know, what actually counts as an evangelical? Um, mm -hmm. That in and of itself is surprisingly hard to do. Um, uh, a while back, I wrote a couple articles right after Donald Trump got elected, um, looking at, well, how is it exactly that you could have 82%, basically, or 81 or 82%, I think, uh, of evangelicals voting for, you know, a thrice married casino owner whose platform <laughs> was really, you know, a sort of white nationalist uh, nostalgic trip. You know, how does that happen? Um, and there's, you could sort of split that into two answers. I mean, one answer would be simply to say, well, you know, this was a sort of unprecedented shift. And then the other and more uncomfortable answer, I think, is that, well, actually, this is something that is a feature rather than a bug, that there's something very specific about the genealogy of evangelicalism that inclines it this way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, even to begin talking about that, you have to talk about what exactly is evangelicalism and how would you define it? Yeah. Um, and one of the things I did, one of the first things you do is, well, you know, who is most practiced in defining this other than scholars? Um, and the answer is pollsters, right? I mean, they're the ones who came up with the 81%. Um, and pollsters actually do all kinds of interesting things to sort of uh, you know, cheat their way through this. Um, so for one thing, if they're doing political polling, they typically throw out black evangelicalism. Um, you know, so black evangelicals who respond are so far outside uh, the mainstream of evangelicalism and their political habits that, you know, it's just not even useful to include them within that group. So really what you're looking at is, 81% of white evangelicals. Uh, black evangelicals typically vote uh, similarly to how black Protestants in general and uh, black Catholics and you know, non-religious African-Americans vote. Um, but then, you know, if you do it, let's say by you know, self-designation, um, you know, occasionally you'll get people who don't want to define themselves as evangelicals, right? They want to say we're Jesus followers is the one that I've heard, you know, most recently. Um, yeah. Or you'll get, uh, you know, if you do it, let's say confessionally, 
you'll get Catholics who check all the boxes, but like they don't really count because they're not in that same genealogical line. Uh, so, you know, they can say, my faith is really important. The Bible is a source of authority for me. Um, you know, I believe that I'm saved by Jesus's death. And they may even have a sort of conversion experience that they can talk about, particularly, um, you know, if they weren't raised Catholic. So, you know, uh, how you define uh, evangelical is it's an interesting sort of um, question to begin with. Um, yeah, I've been working on it because I read a book on evolution um, called What Evolution Is. It's just like a primer on evolution. And I grew up in what I would classify as a very evangelical world. And so I just mm -hmm. had no idea how evolution worked, what the theory was, what the mechanisms were. So I read this book on it and they were talking about um, sort of species being defined by, and I was thinking about evangelicalism while I was reading this. So they were saying species, like our understanding of species had been a certain type, right? Or something that was a certain way, but really it's an interbreeding diverse population. And when I read that in evolutionary theory, I had thought of evangelicalism as sort of like, I was really searching. It's hard to find or figure out, like you've said, what the um, tenets are, right? Because the tenets are really different. But then if I started thinking about people who are engaged in this sort of conversation of evangelicalism, you can start to get a feel for it. It's harder to define them in those terms. Um, yeah. What are the like what are, what's the uh, diverse population and what conversation are they engaged in? But yeah, yeah. that's a, one of the key problems. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, for me, um, I think the two things that help me the most with this um, is first of all, you know, it's historical genealogy. Um, really, evangelicalism, at least in its you know, evangelicals will look back further, of course, you know, to, you know, the Protestant Reformation. Um, they might look back to revivalism and the great missionary movements of the 18th and 19th century, uh, particularly in the Anglophone world. Um, but really what defines evangelicalism uh, is the sort of uh, liberalism, or if it's Catholics talking about it, it's the modernism controversies. Um, that happened in at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century. Um, and then uh, secondarily around say, you know, really in the post-war period, um, uh, that movement and that conflict between uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists and liberals um, really opens up a rift and it segregates um, conservative Protestant Christians from the rest of the world, really. Um, and sort of the uh, locus classicus for this, I suppose, is the Scopes Monkey Trial, right? Um, and if you've read uh, Inherit the Wind, or, you know, I'm sure there's probably, um, you know, Scopes movies out there, too. I feel like there's one with Spencer Tracy. Maybe that is Inherit yeah, I think, the Wind. Yeah. I <laughs> But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's this very obvious thing where Clarence Darrow, the this famed defense attorney, you know, catches up. Um, uh, what's that? William Jennings Bryan, who's mm -hmm. defending, you know, the uh, teaching of creationism. And I mean, it, it's a slam dunk. I mean, it's just really obvious. 
yeah. that the fundamentalists, you know, are on the losing end of that. Um, so around, you know, post-war 1950, think like Billy Graham, you know, folks like that, mm-hmm. uh, you really get a, a desire to become more engaged with mainstream America to present a sort of winsome version of the faith and, you know, not to segregate oneself, but to engage uh, on equal terms with the world. And, you know, I think in the better incarnations of evangelicalism, you see something like that. Um, However, um, and here I suppose I'll wade a little bit into controversy, but I think there are certain battles that evangelicals can't win. Um, so, you know, one of them, for example, is, you know, the, the debate about evolution. Um, I would add, you know, the debate about higher criticism too, to an extent, there's certain questions that you really can't get around. Um, Mm uh, and in those circumstances, I mean, the evangelicals are just losing. So what do you do? Um, and the answer is, I think in many different forums, is to create your own branding. <laughs> um, and you see that everywhere. Um, you know, I remember growing up um, and I went to Christian um, elementary schools and middle schools. And of course I was taught this very conservative Bob Jones and A. Becca books, I think were the mm, two yeah. curricula <laughs> that were used pretty, and, and I guess are very widely used across homeschooling. Uh, curricula or were I think it's changed now um, and uh, you know Bob Jones and so on and they would present this uh, you know basically arm the students with these arguments to you know identify all the flaws in evolution and and so on and I mean it's all junk um, you know any reputable science can pick this stuff apart but you know if you don't have that if you're say learning biology and you know, in a biology textbook, you really don't know the difference, right? Um, and, you know, you can see that in you know, Christian music and the development of that industry. I mean, any number of different areas, I think you can mm-hmm. see this. In fact, so I would say history is a big part of it. It's those two movements, um, the liberalism controversy in the earlier part of the 20th century, and then the desire of evangelicals to break away from separating from mainstream society and engaged with it that happens in the post-war period that really defines the two. Um, and the other thing, and, and coming out of that, which I find a really intriguing way to do it, I didn't explore it in my article, but one of my friends hit me up afterwards and said, hey, have you heard about this approach? Rather than trying to define evangelicals by confession or self-identification or even history, you could do it by, you know, say, coming up with a, a survey of 10 things, you know, DC talk, uh, you know, uh, you know, certain experiences like, you know, youth group pizza party lockets, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> purity rings, you know, you can probably populate it yourself. I mean, you guys probably come up with a better list than well, I could. But... Since this is a book podcast, let's yeah, right. come up with a list. I'm going to put on the top, I kiss dating goodbye. Well, there you go. Ooh. Ooh. Then maybe yeah, as a yeah. adult, you dipped in John Piper. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on your era, I mean, you know, I'm yeah. very dated by all this, but uh, yeah, yeah, that certainly makes sense to me. 
I've been reading the Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald, and oh, right. uh, yeah, yeah, it's my first exposure to this history. Mm. So it's interesting. I know that some people go through therapy or they read the Enneagram book, and they're so thrilled to have like their life described for them. That's really like clarifying and exciting for some people. And when I was reading the history of the evangelical movement in this book, I was feeling like, oh, this author is describing my life. <laughs> like yeah. this history is why it was what it was. I think most evangelicals, because there's certain things that we uh, like assumptions that are buried in it. Like one is that sort of like that your beliefs are immediate, right? That you have direct relations to God and to the Bible. And you kind of assume that like, they suddenly appear like a complete set of beliefs can suddenly appear in your life um, in the book. And so you don't look back. Uh, yeah. You don't see the development of these ideas. So, so this is really like, it's a strange season to be doing this already into my late thirties, but like reading back on the development of this, mm -hmm. of this uh, thread of Christianity that I'm a part of has been like, it's been like reading your number on the Enneagram, which actually yeah. doesn't do it for me. But for some people, <laughs> they get the same feeling like, oh, this is me. This is my life. I'm so like, it makes so much sense. But yeah, I mean, as evangelicals, we're sort of trained not to examine that development so that we have a sense of immediacy and place where we are. And I feel like there's this like within religion and even Christianity itself, the, the idea that like there's this objective God because that it we kind of tend to put that on our beliefs like oh we we don't really look back in hindsight as of how these beliefs came we just assume oh it's because it's from god it must have been i don't know we don't ever question what if i'm wrong like what if what if this is not correct and in the past have we been wrong i, th I think that is just left out a lot of, of a lot of like our teaching and our thoughts we just don't we don't have a lot of yeah good hindsight i guess or at least i didn't for quite some time growing up i just yeah, it was. It was yeah, not there. I think. I mean, it's a it's a movement that. I mean, first of all, you know, there's a sort of immediacy of personal relationship with God that you know is very <laughs> central to that. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's also a very American, uh, you know, ideal at least in American evangelicalism. I really can't speak to um, the tradition in other places, but um, where it's this idea that you can kind of begin totally anew um you know one of the things wow. that was always kind of shocking to me you know especially now having gone through you know a doctorate where i looked at history of christianity specifically you know there's really not much of a genealogy at all that anybody's aware of um in evangelicalism um, you know, there's kind of a vague understanding of, well, we're Protestants, so, you know, Martin Luther and maybe John Calvin are, are good guys. Uh, maybe, you know, John Wesley or, you know, there, there are certain stories of uh, historical figures that you sometimes have access to. But beyond that, I mean, there's just very little understanding with the average parishioner about, mm -hmm. you know, anything before like 1500, right. Between like Jesus and 1500, it's just, you know, oh, yeah. there were Christians dying in arenas at some point there. <laughs> um, but then, you know, nobody really knows what happened for about a thousand years. And then all of a sudden somebody woke up and, mm -hmm. you know, 
I mean, I think that's changing, um, certainly at the academic level. Um, quite interestingly, there's a lot of evangelicals who, you know, are looking at early Christianity, for example, mm -hmm. which is the field that I happen to be in. Um, so I think that there's some desire to, to uncover that. But as yeah. a whole, that movement, and I would say, anecdotally, you know, the number of people I know who began as evangelicals and, you know, studied early Christianity or medieval Christianity, the, the numbers that become Eastern Orthodox or Catholic um, or, you know, uh, Episcopalian like myself, you know, are pretty staggering. I would say probably if I had to ballpark it, seven or eight out of 10. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's just that desire for, you know, historical anchorage that's so strong. And you yeah. see it, you know, at the ecclesia level too, you know, with, you know, these, um, you know, churches, evangelical churches that, you know, start putting in standard liturgical parts or, you know, start doing, you know, certain responsorials or, you know, what have you. Um, and, and I think that's a, a good thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's an awareness of history um, and a, a self-awareness really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, your, you know, your area of study, early Christianity, what I, I'm always curious. And we, I, we always, one of my favorite things to ask people that we speak with is where did you, how did you arrive at that point? You mentioned growing up in Christian school, middle school. Um, but where, at what point did you realize that was like a really big interest for you and what kind of propelled you in that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I went to Christian elementary school and middle school, but I went to Catholic prep school for high school. Um, and so that was a very different wow. yeah. uh, experience. You know, I had to take uh, really very good religion classes, I have to say. Um, you know, they were not, you know, cram the catechism down your throat and, you know, <laughs> here's a bunch of stuff that you need to memorize or, mm -hmm. you know, Sister Mary battleship is going to smack you over the knuckles. Um, it was actually, I mean, everybody laughs when I say this, but, you know, I found Catholic school as like a liberation and, you know, people who went through really horrible Catholic school experiences <laughs> are like, what, you know, what planet did you come from? But, you know, um, that was really my experience. And it was also, uh, you know, very rigorous school. So, you know, I got a very classical education and did mm. four years of Latin, two years Greek. Um, so part of it was just having some of the linguistic yeah. background, um, that, you know, studying early Christianity was interesting. But, you know, it was really kind of an interest that got peaked when, you know, I've always been interested in history. Um, and I've always been, you know, that kid in the classroom who's like, okay, you know, we have like these events that we get taught in history class, you know, the pilgrims, you know, they have this dinner with you know squanto and the wampanoags and you know i was always the kid who raised my hand you know what happened after that <laughs> you know like this is a nice little tableau here but like how do we get to where we are here from you know and that's never answered by the textbook um <laughs> so a big question for me was like okay we have this new testament and now you know we're two thousand years later like how do we get here from there and what I started to find, you know, just in classes that I took in seminary was uh, there was a lot of really interesting stuff that happened in between. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, it wasn't as if, you know, the New Testament was done and, you know, 
uh, all the apostles were like, okay, I guess we can die now. And, you know, well, actually, they were probably long dead anyway. But, um, you know, it wasn't like the church had all the answers. It wasn't mm-hmm. this, you know, pristine version of Christianity that then sort of got corrupted. Um, really, we sort of stand in that same stream, you know, mm-hmm. of people who are there making decisions, making it up as we go along. And, and that was the case you know, in biblical times too, it wasn't like Paul had everything figured out or John or whatever. Mm. Um, and, you know, I found that kind of liberating and also really interesting, you know, how was it that they solved problems? You know, how is it, you know, what were the challenges that they faced? Um, you know, how did they adapt to those? Um, and I sort of found that fascinating, um, and, you know, stayed long enough to finish a dissertation on it. (laughs) So if people are early in the process of like sort of discovering um, early church history or are interested in doing like 101 level readings, mm-hmm. um, do you have any texts you recommend or places where people can start? Yeah, there are lots of uh, good places to start. Um, I would, when I taught early Christianity at uh, Georgia State, um, this was uh, last year, I mean, I had a lot of primary source text, but I used uh, Robert Wilkins textbook, The First Thousand Years. Um, And that's very good. It's about 300 pages. Um, He was a historian at uh, University of Virginia. And he's just a very careful, um, you know, smart scholar, um, you know, not too wild and crazy or anything. So, you know, the Mm -hmm. interpretations that he gives are are pretty standard for our Mm -hmm. field, I think. Um, So I really like that. And the great thing about it, too, is it's a genuinely global history of early Christianity, which is very rare. Um, And and it's not driven specifically by doctrine, um, which not that there's anything wrong with that. There are great doctrinal or history of ideas type approaches to early Christianity, but Wilkins' account is very readable, accessible, and global in scope. Um, he also has a book, which I always enjoy assigning, um, uh, called, uh, Christians as the Roman song. And huh. that book is, uh, really interesting, um, because it tells the story from a really unfamiliar angle. Um, and, you know, ultimately you find out a lot about what drives the Romans, um, but also, I think uh, you learn a lot about Christianity, um, you know, that's not narrated by, you know, the cheerleaders, um, you know, it's narrated by people who, you know, weren't necessarily, some of them were antagonistic. Um, and so he looks at, you know, Celsus, for example, who writes a, uh, a scathing sort of attack on Christianity called the true word. Um, but he has a sort of really balanced and really open-minded approach. Um, So one of the things that Kelsus does that's very interesting is, you know, he applies almost like a precursor to what we see in modern critical biblical scholarship. You know, he picks up on the discrepancies between the gospels and so on and, and, and raises these, uh, you know, as questions or, you know, so those sorts of things are really fascinating uh, as insights. Um, Yeah. I think, one of the things that I found most fascinating about that book are some of the earlier chapters um, where you get sort of the first descriptions of this group from outside the group. Um, And so 
you know, basically what they do is they describe this group. I mean, first of all, they see them as a Jewish sectarian group, which is what they were. Um, and they class them in, you know, the same category. You know, so they say, you know, the partisans of or refer to the Christians as partisans of uh, Moses and Jesus. Right. So they don't really see any distinction between them. They just see, you know, these are the special Jews who like this Jesus guy, but they see them as as Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also use the category. They don't say that they're part of a church. Um, that would not have made a lot of sense to them because the word for church, ecclesia, is, you know, the sort of standard word for like a city council or something like that. So that wasn't what the Christians were, really. Mm. Um, they use the term hetaeria, um, which is like, a, we don't really have a, an exact equivalent, but it was kind of like a club or a voluntary association. And the reason why we don't have anything quite like that is, you know, we think like a ah, rotary club or something like that. Um, but really what clubs were about is they were voluntary associations that were usually defined by guild. So let's say, you know, you worked as a stonemason. Well, you know, you didn't have insurance and you actually had a pretty dangerous job. Um, you know, you could easily, you know, as you're putting bricks down or something like that, you fall off the scaffold, you know, you break your bones. You have no way to make money for your family. You might die you could easily get sick at any time. So what you would do is you would pay money into that like you would for a mm. union. And, you know, in case something terrible happened, they would provide for your burial fees and stuff like that. And they, you know, they provided companionship and things like that too. It wasn't just the benefits that you got out of it. Um, the thing is about these uh, clubs is that they tended to be very politically charged. Um, in much the same way that in the 20th century, you have unions that are politically charged, right? Vote for this candidate. It's going to be good for the working man and so on. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times uh, what uh, the emperor or, you know, the proconsular governments would do is they would try to restrict the activities of these hetairei. Generally, they let them kind of go their own way. But, you know, if they didn't know about them, you know, if they didn't register with the state, they had no way to regulate them and control them. And that's when they became dangerous. Now, you know, doesn't take a genius to figure out where this is going. Why is it that, you know, these poor, uh, tiny, you know, for much of the early period, inconsequential uh, Jewish sectarian group would be persecuted by the powerful Romans? Well, you know, part of that is actually a sort of myth. Um, you know, there really wasn't uh, with one major exception, maybe two, uh, there weren't any widespread sporadic uh, or widespread uh, concentrated persecutions that took place. You know, uh, that's really more mythic than true. Um, but, you know, you could see why these groups um, that met in secret, um, you know, that were formed this club. Uh, and that had strange beliefs uh, that deviated in some interesting ways from Judaism um, would have been deemed as, you know, being somewhat uh, hostile or uh, a threat. Um, and, and that's really illuminating, I think, into, first of all, you know, why 
this group was deemed to be um, dangerous um, and strange. Um, the other thing that's really interesting too is that you know one of the accusations that's hurled at uh, the early Christians is that you know they're antisocial or haters of humanity, um, and you know it always struck me as really strange. Like you know the Christians are supposed to be the good guys, but they had you know prescriptions against um, going to and eating meat at temple offered at temple ceremonies, right? You know, pagan temples. Well, that was really the only time that the vast majority of people who were very poor and everything got to eat meals, right? They're, they didn't have a sort of um, religious category that was separated from everyday life, right? You know, uh, the temple worship was part of participation in civic life and social life. So if you have this weird group who meets on their own, forms their own club mm -hmm. and doesn't even come, you know, to the big city potluck, you know, the tailgating at, you know, before the <laughs> football game, like what the hell is wrong with them? And then of course, you know, the, the topping on the cake, of course, is when, you know, later on, you know, the great persecution, um, uh, when they uh, refuse to uh, offer these um, certificates to say that they've sacrificed to the pagan gods uh, and to the genius of the empire, right? That's when it really gets. And, you know, when I teach this, I always say, you know, we actually have something in our recent past that's actually pretty close to this. Think about Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem, right? Why did people get so worked up about that? Well, because he disrupted a sort of um, ceremony that mm. we're not used to having disrupted, right? <laughs> um, now, I'm not saying that, you know, standing for the American flag during, um, you know, the national anthem is uh, necessarily the same as, you know, acknowledging the genius of the emperor. But, <laughs> you know, it's very, it's a similar and analogous sort of thing. Yeah. And that's the way it would have been perceived, you know, anti-patriotic, what's mm -hmm. wrong with you? Yeah. So all that to say, Wilkins book, uh, Christians as the Romans saw them, is really fascinating and eye-opening as, as far as understanding those frameworks a little bit better and, and wow. really understanding how Christians would have seen themselves too. Good, so what, uh... By the way, anyone listening to this, uh, we're recording what books are discussed, and we'll post a list under the under the episodes. Absolutely. So I know everyone's frankly looking for oh. notebooks. <laughs> Doing um, the work for you, listeners. Yeah. Don't you worry. So on a different <laughs> change gears a little bit. We're in a we're in a pandemic right now, mm -hmm. which circumstances have changed. I don't know what your working situation or your schooling situation at home is like. Um, but so some people have more time, some people have less, but, um, which, um, babysitters club book are you on right now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm like, never, you know, this is actually perfect to talk, segue to talk about Adorno's, the culture industry. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. uh, That's great. yeah, I mean, I will say that I never read those. I read all the Hardy Boys mysteries. Mm. Oh that, yeah, that yeah. was kind of that was kind of the the standard sort of thing um, nice. that you know, we had a lot of. 
my first break from uh, expected gender roles was I was really into Hardy Boys, and I snuck some Nancy Drew novels alongside. Nice. Kind of concerned awesome. my parents for a while. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, no, what do you read for fun? Like, what's... Uh, do you, do you have anything uh, on your shelf now that's interesting and fun? Tim, I'll open this up to you. Let's talk about what we're reading for fun, too. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear what Tim's reading. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'll share mine, too, but yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing most of the talking here, so I don't well, want to monopolize time. You're really the star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm reading a coach, which is funny. I, normally, when I say for fun, I... This is a little bit heavier than I typically would read for fun. I did not mean to have it beside me, I promise. But I'm reading a book. I literally, so you know, whenever, you know, we used to record these Atlanta vintage books, and I have a really bad habit of going, when I go in, I feel guilty if I don't leave with something. I don't know why that is. I just, I just have this thing of like, oh, if I'm in here and I'm taking their time and I got kids and they're running around, like, I need to leave. So I just really stumbled on this and I've been really fascinated by it. It's called The Land We Are. And it's a, um, it's like a collection. Of, it's a Canadian book, a book for, or, or dealing with uh, like the issues of reconciliation and justice in Canada with like indigenous, like First Nations and what oh, wow. that looks like. And it kind of is almost critiquing reconciliation away, saying, hey, this isn't enough just to kind of mo- like not deal with the past and and push forward like it's there. We it's more work than just like coming together in unity. And so, um, and they're kind of, they kind of discuss it through like different, like art throughout cities and just how art can kind of, um, increase awareness and thought as to what, you know, real justice actually looks like. And I'm only like, yeah, this, I'm not far into it, but it's been really, it has pictures too. So that's been (laughs) interesting of like different, uh, different art, like uh, art, uh, spots around like Vancouver and other places. But, it's been really, really neat so far. And it's one of those, like, I, I almost, usually if I go in there, I I find, like, an author or something I know, like, I know about already and I'm kind of interested in. But this is just kind of one of those, the cover just kind of got me. And I've been really, I've been really glad. Yeah, it's been really good. That sounds terrific. It is, a, it's, it's really fascinating so far. It's one of those I know I'm going to have to reread. It's very, yeah, there's a lot to it. There's a lot there. But it's really good. Yeah. Ian, what about you? Well, every October, I mean, I do the seasonal thing, right? I turn, I, I draw up a huge... This is the pumpkin spice latte of yeah. you know, book club, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the pumpkin spice latte of books. My pumpkin spice latte every October is Shirley Jackson's stories. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. That's great. Yeah. I just love her work. I don't find it to be, I mean, most of it, I, if I read it and I didn't have prior knowledge or know that she had been classified this way, I wouldn't call it horror. Um, but they're definitely sudden, right? They're definitely surprising. And I would say she's good at unease. So, yeah, uh, yeah I just finished. I had I had read most of her other stuff that's not... Um, well, they're kind of like two Shirley Jacksons. And... Uh, uh, like she would write sort of domestic stories and books of observations and then uh more like literary fiction slash horror um stuff so i've read most of the stuff on the literary fiction side uh 
but I had her main collection, the lottery and other stories I hadn't read. So I was really thrilled to read that. And I was just, uh, I was just reminded my favorite short story of hers. I'd highly recommend. I don't know if there's a link to it online, but I think everyone should read it. It's called paranoia about this guy who gets the sense that he's being followed and it grows and grows. So that's a great short story. One of my favorites. Um, yeah. So that's what I read for fun. Um, and then I've been watching, actually, my reading has suffered. I hate to admit this on a podcast about books, but my reading has <laughs> suffered because I've been on, there's a streaming service called the Criterion Channel, and they oh, released great. a series of 28 movies from the golden age of horror, the 70s. So it's like a 70s horror collection. Yeah. And I'm trying to watch all of them in October, which comes out to a little less than one movie a day. <laughs> So, and I have That's two awesome. kids and two jobs. So I, yeah, the reading has been a little bit sidelined, but yeah, it's been Shirley Jackson and I tuck her, her stories are pretty short. So I tuck it right next to the coffee maker in the kitchen. And I have this whole like process to make coffee. And so while mm. I'm waiting between steps, That's I can awesome. usually story read. If That's not, awesome. I'll take to the couch with me while I'm drinking my coffee. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad you brought That's up awesome. film. I'm glad you brought what up you film because, uh, what are you reading? I feel like we really uh, screwed ourselves with the time. Like as much as I love talking about reading, I also kind of want to find a way to incorporate that, but it's hard to, when it's called, what are you reading? But there's not really a, a way to ask like, what are you taking in? I don't know how to like combine all yeah. those elements. Oh yeah. Into... We had this idea a while ago. Cause Tim and I watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books. <laughs> oh, well, I think I remember this the segment in what are you reading called? What aren't you reading? Where we talk about other <laughs> media we're consuming. But... There you go. Yeah. But I think, but the we asked a couple, we tried it out, and it both times. I guess we should have brought, discussed it pr- before the recording, but they thought it meant like, what books are you never going to read? So someone mentioned like Mein Kampf and other things, <laughs> and we we're like, no, no, we're not. Not, not what you mean. <laughs> it it yeah. totally didn't work. So, but may, I don't know. Maybe we'll bring it back. I don't know, but yeah, it definitely didn't work initially. So we'll see. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Ryan. What are you reading? Yeah, uh, so I have like super heavy stuff. Like I'd never read, uh, I won't say never, but I rarely read stuff, just, you know, fun stuff. So I probably should lighten my mood a little bit. But um, so I, uh, what have I read lately? Um, Right now I'm reading uh, Simone de Beauvoir's uh, The Second Sex, which while it's not, uh, it's definitely heavier and, you know, it's not light there, but it is like really interesting. I think one of the reasons why I enjoy reading is to know more about myself. And I think that's, you know, Ian's experience with Fitzgerald's book on the evangelicals. But the other reason to read, I think, is to be able to expand your experience beyond, you know, what your own life entails and to be able to see through the lenses of somebody who has a very different um uh experience and so that was kind of the you know i've had it on my shelf for a while read bits and pieces of it you know for school and um you know dipping into it here and there i was like you know i just need to go through this whole thing and i mean it's really uh it's incredibly well written um and of course it's you know, a classic and feminist literature. Um, so that's been really, uh, I've enjoyed digging into that and just kind of 
being able to, I mean, she goes through, you know, history and myth and, um, it, you know, it's like having just a really smart person guide you through each part of how women have been classified and understood and symbolized wow. and treated. Um, it's this, you know, she was a phenomenologist of, so, you know, she's looking at the entirety of human experience and, and how womanhood gets uh, categorized and understood and, mm. and so on. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting one to, I'm about halfway through that. Um, and then I picked up this book. Uh, I read some of his work for my dissertation. His name is uh, Walter Scheidel. Um, he's at Stanford University now. Um, and he's written this book a few years ago called The Great Leveler. And the book is about basically historical inequality. And Scheidel is a classical demographer. Um, so, you know, he's interested in populations of people, birth and death ratios and things like that in classical antiquity. But in this book, he looks at the entire expanse of human history and he even has in the first chapter, he looks at primate behavior. And uh, he asked the question, you know, basically is what are the conditions historically under which inequality flourishes in societies? And what, if anything, causes us to scale that back and make changes to make um, societies more equal? And he comes to the rather depressing um, conclusion well, I mean, he ventilates it at the beginning, but of course the whole thing is you know, a few hundred pages. But basically he says there are four things. Um, you know, there are, um, uh, you know, basically a political breakdown, um, a revolution, uh, mass mobilization warfare, and pandemics. <laughs> um, so, hey, got all four. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, <laughs> yeah. And so what's interesting is he says, you know, basically outside those four, you will not see um, any appreciable shifts in the concentration of wealth in societies. Mm. Um, and right now I'm kind of in the earlier stages. I'm about 60, 70 pages in, but he's just really painstakingly cataloging, you know, what were the sources of inequality? And, um, you know, obviously a lot of his conclusions are debatable and, you know, have been hotly contested in scholarly circles, but they're very interesting and, and well-documented. I mean, you know, he talks about uh, the biggest thing that contributes to it, first of all, is sedentarization, um, which I kind of knew, but uh, he's much more specific about it. He says it's not just that the agricultural revolution takes place. It's a very specific types of crops that are labor intensive, but can also be stored. Um, and that allows for some um, concentration of wealth for the people yeah. who can control it. But it's also, um, interestingly enough, um, it creates the conditions for heritable wealth. He says that's actually the biggest driver of inequality is when you have groups of people who can pass on their wealth. Mm. And he actually looks at a few societies that don't have those conditions um, and notes that you don't really have. So Mamluk, Egypt, and I want to say the um, 12th century, something like that, you know, they didn't have those same conditions. Um, and, 
you know, you didn't have dynastic rulers or so on. And so they didn't have, uh, you know, inequalities quite to the degree that other similar societies did. So it's an interesting thesis. And, Mm. you know, uh, it does definitely make me think about the pandemic as being, you know, we see it as a very negative thing, but actually, historically speaking, in the long view, it's one of the very few things that causes us to look at how and why we distribute our material resources the way that we do. Yeah, that's great. Wow. If you're sitting in this pandemic at home, there's reason to hope for a better future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, we're, this has been great, Ryan. I've got, I'm going to add uh, a bunch of books we've talked about yeah. uh, my personal to read list. It's great to reconnect with you um, mm. uh, outside of Facebook, uh, but Keep doing your Facebook thing. We really appreciate it. As long as um, you're still on, Ian, and you know you don't become a Facebook refugee or no, you know it's one of these funny things where you know oh, I'm not a big fan of Facebook, you know per se. Oh, yeah, uh, certainly not as a corporation, and yet you know I think it's the ease with which you can be in touch with all these different people who matter to you, and yeah. you know who you may not For live sure. around anymore. Or may not be in the same line of work or whatever um i think it's you know at least a way to to touch base there so i think Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of figuring out how do we do this in a way that feels healthy or um feels like it captures the good of that rather than you know all the terrible stuff that (laughs) it it drives to yeah (laughs) yeah we're all figuring it out i think day by day as the dynamics change too so yeah Oh, I was going to say Kant has uh, states somewhere that, you know, out of the crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. So, you know, we shouldn't expect our social networks to be all that great either. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Well, uh, check us out on uh, on our Tim. What do we want to say for closing? Oh, my goodness. It's been so long. Yeah. Uh Hopefully before this airs, I will have dusted off our website, what are you reading podcast.com because there is kind of where you can find us in other places too. Like we're on Instagram here and there and Facebook here. It's just kind of all over the place to some small degree. So uh, check us out there. And then also wherever you listen, I mean, obviously you're listening to a podcast now, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us um, subscribe and rate and review. If you feel, uh, feel like it. Um, that's actually one reason we kind of wanted to do this again. We kind of nostalgically looked back and noticed some like really kind reviews and ratings and uh, just, I don't, it was people uh, actually like us. Yeah. We were like, wait, people listened. And so it kind of like was, we already were talking about it, but it was one of those moments of like, Oh, Hey, let's, let's bring this back. But um, I mean, it, it was kind of the fuel. We were already kind of, I feel like a lot of the same stuff that caused us to want to do this kind of was, kind of occurring again just in just critical issues in society and um we just needed that outlet once more to to be able to talk about it but yeah so anyway so we appreciate any sort of feedback and uh criticism hopefully constructive but uh yeah but uh but yeah thank you bad to say send us a message if it's positive write it on yeah on <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Uh, but either way, thank you so much for listening. And I guess that's it. I know we always used to end with a quote, but I came unprepared for that. So <laughs> thanks again, Ryan. This was great. Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. <laughs>